public parks were seen as a way of providing a space where things could be healthier and where people would be kept out of public houses. Whatever water we have is, is highly saline, either groundwater or come from the sea. So we had no other choice but to find alternate water sources for irrigation, especially to sustain the landscape. And we have been very successful in that sense. We have quite a few species that are termed as aerophytes that can not only survive in this highly saline water, they can also exude the salt from their leaves and from the stem. I think it's the immersive feeling of it. You know, you've got this huge rectilinear grid city and the park itself is about two and a half miles long, a half a mile wide. Even in the deepest immersed areas of it, down in a rocky gorge, you still can see in most places a tower block. That contrast kind of aids the excitement of the whole thing, the whole place. Our job in this place is really tough. We have the most challenging conditions. But despite that, I think Dubai and especially in the Middle East, we do tend to deliver really good projects because we have understood the conditions here. You're listening to Talking Landscape, a podcast which explores the big issues in placemaking, nature and the environment through conversations with leading landscape architects and practitioners. I'm your host, Paul Lincoln, editor of Landscape, the journal on which this podcast is based. In this episode, we'll be looking at examples of pioneering parks of the past and pioneering parks of the future. Joining me are Karen Fitzsimmon, Coilin D'Souza and Rajan Duam. Karen is a chartered landscape architect, historian and horticulturist. She researches, writes and lectures about British landscape architecture. She's a visiting lecturer at the Bartlett School of Architecture. She's an experienced food grower and her major preoccupation at the moment is she's working on a PhD at the University of Westminster on the landscape architect Prabhan Jakobsen. Colleen is director and head of Cracknell's integrated horticulture team. She's been instrumental in expanding the plant typologies used in the Middle East and North Africa regions of the last three decades, challenging local standards and adding ecological and resilience value. Rajan is Group Design and Technical Director at Cracknell and is a specialist in water management and modern irrigation techniques. Rajan has over 40 years experience in planning, design, construction detailing, management construction resourcing and the engineering design of both hard and soft landscapes. And what I wanted to do before we started is to ask all of you... um, how you chose to work in this sector and how you got to be where you are. So let's start with you. Well, I suppose I've always had an awareness of place and how places make me feel. Um, And I grew up in a place that was rural in rural Ireland on a farm, but yet it was very close to the city. So there's unusual contrast of uh, natural play, nature, wild landscape, wild play, and then Georgian Dublin City, which is our nearest biggest city. And in between these two places, I became aware of a growing suburbia which, although I didn't have the language, my language then was, it was blah, <laughs> but it didn't seem particularly designed. It was just, you know, inconsiderate expansion of the city in many places. Um, but between those three type of places, rural, suburbia, and an established townscape of a Georgian city, the seeds of um, an interest in placemaking were sown. And then I had the opportunity to study horticulture as my first degree and landscape architecture as my second. And there the rest followed. 
Great, thank you. Um, I should say that we are recording this podcast in London and in Dubai. So if I can now go over uh, to Colleen, if you'd like to tell us a bit about what got you into this um, area of work and how you got to where you are at the moment. Thank you, Paul. As far as I can remember, I always thought my love for nature and sustainability, and especially plants, came from growing up in my grandparents' uh, farm back in India. We had huge uh, fields of rice. We had lots of uh, coconuts, fruit trees, and obviously farm animals. And I can remember that being the happiest time of my life. I always went out with uh, the farmers into the field. I got up close to all the plants that were growing wild, not only the ornamental plants that we were growing in the garden, but actually the wild plants, seeing how nature was at its best when no one was maintaining it. They were just full of uh, bees and butterflies and various kinds of insects crawling around. I think at that particular age, when you're a child, everything just seems absolutely wonderful. You don't, you don't know the difference between some creepy crawly that, is, that you're not supposed to get close to or even snakes. I remember so many snakes around the place. I was never, never afraid of snakes. So I think that is the wonderful part of being in tune with nature, in touch with nature, and I'm glad we've had the opportunity to pursue our professions where day to day we are doing exactly, exactly that. Great. Thank you. And now Rajan is also in Cracknell's Dubai office. So tell us a little bit about where you started your career. Well, I grew up and studied in a state which produces 60% of Indian grain production. So I've seen how they use water, how the crops are grown and uh, how they misuse the water, with the water being scarce every day. So it really it got stuck to my mind, you know, something can be done. So when I was finishing my engineering studies, I got involved into looking into modern irrigation techniques. In our state, you know, it has five rivers running through the state. And everybody thought, oh, we have abundance of water, we can use whatever we like. But that caught my imagination that something should be done and how we do judiciously use this water and make it work better for the human being. Uh, then I got my first opportunity where I had the task to go and meet farmers in remote areas of India where the water was really scarce. The orchards were dying, they couldn't grow anything. So it was really very interesting to get involved in this practical experience of how you can make sure the water can be judicially used and how we, this small amount of water, you can still achieve the results you want to achieve. So that took me, you know, right from the beginning itself on this journey. And then coming to the Middle East about, about 35 years back. And this is a very challenging place where water is scarce. Everybody is aware of that. We have very hot climatic conditions. So this journey is still going on. Karen wrote the article which kicked off this edition of Landscape, and she focused on two really important historic parks, which influenced not only park design, but city planning as a whole on both sides of the Atlantic. Central Park in New York, and the British Park which inspired it, Birkenhead Park in Merseyside. 
Carol, before we dive into these two examples, tell us a little bit about the history of well, the Well, effectively, park. the phenomenon of public parks developed from the private domain, with the earliest adapted from royal or private estates or created through philanthropy. But the thing is that even when they shifted out of the private domain, they were not open to everyone. That just took time. But as the city expanded, say here in London, populations were growing, uh, industrialisation was happening, poverty, um, poor hygiene, etc. And there wasn't the same understanding then of uh, what caused these things, but it was thought to do with air pollution and, and things called miasmas, which were considered to flow through the air and contaminate people. Um, and so there was genuine concern for the people who lived in these areas, but there was also a bit of uh, looking after ourselves. So those in the more prosperous sides of town wanted to make sure that the miasmas didn't float over their way, basically. <laughs> so there was a great push to do something and public parks were seen as a way of providing a space where things could be healthier and where people would be kept out of public houses, which could be seen to cause unrest. Would you say that argument absolutely applies to Birkenhead, that it was seen as a way of bringing health to an area? That was a little bit different because Birkenhead was a new town. Victoria Park had happened and other parks had started to happen. But at Birkenhead, there was a new legislation which allowed the local authorities to borrow money to fund public parks. And the councillors, burgesses of Birkenhead decided they would like a new park uh, for this growing new town. So I'm sure the public health issue came into it, but it was also part of a wider thinking of this new place or this expanded place called Birkenhead, which was very old. It had 12th century monastic roots. But with the rise of steam, um, boating and travel, the place was able to grow hugely. It was right across the Mersey, as in Jeremy and the Pacemakers, ferry across the Mersey, Absolutely. right across the Mersey Absolutely. from Liverpool. Right the Mersey um, from so in the olden days, I mean, like in the monks era, you know, they used to row their boats across with their farm produce. And then in the 19th century, that um, proximity and steam uh, movement allowed uh, the place just to grow and the docks to expand. And what's really interesting is the way I'm just trying to think about whether the park is is a refuge or a destination. So when I think about both Central Park and Victoria Park, it seems to me that you've got incredibly dense areas and you can kind of disappear into the park for a moment, a respite. Um, Birkenhead is, is much more spacious. Um, would, would you see it as a refuge or, or, as you said, the fact you can get a boat to it? Do you think that changes the I way? I suspect in the early days it was very much for the people around there. And yes, folk from Liverpool perhaps came across. But we'll move on to this a, a little bit later. But the way Olmsted discovered this park, Frederick Law Olmsted, is interesting in itself uh, because it started to become a destination. And it's interesting because one thing, one reason I was so keen uh, to, to start the magazine with this article was mm. to set the scene for a whole new generation mm. of parks. And what you trace very eloquently is the relationship between uh, Birkenhead and Central Park. Um, say a bit about the relationship between the two and the way in which... It, yeah, right. So um, yeah. Frederick Law Olmsted, who I'm sure everybody listening will know of, um, was a kind of a gentleman farmer. And he started touring Europe to get ideas about agriculture and agriculture reform. Nothing to do with landscape design. And while he was here, he spent six months traveling in Western Europe. He um, went up to see Birkenhead Newtown. And the story goes that he was in a bakery buying a bun and the baker said, you must come and see our new park. So he trotted off to have a look at Birkenhead Park and he was blown away by it because there wasn't a concept of public parks in the States. 
they have the national parks, but not, not a public park like that. And especially one in an urban area that was open to everybody and that sports were played in. He was really impressed with that and it sowed a seed. And he wrote about it, he published about it later when he got back to the States and ultimately led to changing career. Absolutely. And what do you think are the greatest qualities of, of Central um, To Park? me, I think it's the immersive feeling of it. You know, you've got this huge rectilinear grid city and the park itself is about two and a half miles long, a half a mile wide. And when you're even in the deepest immersed areas of it, down in a rocky gorge, you still can see most places a tower block. But it, the kind of that contrast kind of aids the excitement of the whole thing and the whole place. Um, so that connection with nature immersion and yet there are these bits of um, formality there's a grand mall of trees because the commissioners wanted a bit of formality Olmsted's aim was to bring a bit of countryside rural idyll as you'd seen at Birkenhead which was designed by Joseph Paxton and that had been Paxton's aim at Birkenhead was to bring rural idyll countryside in so Olmsted followed that kind of brief but the uh, commissioners wanted some fancy bits basically and they put in a fantastic mall of trees leading to this wonderful uh, multi-terraced fountain, the Bethesda fountain which is wonderful. So it has this nice combination of really rustic feeling places and then a bit more formality and because of the different levels of changes in it you can hide away in it really really easily and what I love about Central Park is it's got so many cultural references you know we all know strawberry fields. That is really interesting. Um, one quote you've got from Doug Blonsky, who was the chief executive of the Central Park Conservancy, which I think is the is the body that, that runs the park. He said, first of all, he said, without Birkenhead Park, there would be no Central Park. And I think you've explained that very well. But then he said, I think slightly more mysteriously, uh, without Central Park, there would be no New York City. Um, why is Central Park such an intrinsic part of the city, both historically and Back today? Back in the very early 19th century, there was no big park in the area of Manhattan. And there was a great risk that all of the land area would be taken up by development, this grid that had been started. So there was a movement advocated by people like Olmsted and other people, Andrew Jackson Downing, etc., to create a park. And luckily, the city commissioners, the New York City commissioners, owned a two very large reservoirs, kind of midtown, the centre of, of the peninsula itself. And with that and with some compulsory purchasing, they set aside the space for this as I said, two and a half mile long, although the size was slightly different then, um, but this very, very large park, which follows the grid-like structure of the city itself. And had that not happened, it's very possible that every bit of that land, or almost all of it, would have been built upon and there would just be pocket parks as we and community gardens as we have elsewhere in New York City. Okay, and let me ask you a question about traffic. One similarity I noticed when I was looking at Birkenhead Park with, with the photographer was the fact that there was a huge amount of space for segregated traffic, although all the roads are now closed. But equally, Victoria Park and, in fact, quite a lot of London parks accommodate a lot of traffic. And I think that's true of mm -hmm. Central Park as well. Mm -hmm. So comment yeah. on the way that works. Do you think yeah. that's satisfactory? Or, or, or well, you've got to put yourself back 100 so years to what transport was like then. I mean, it was horse-drawn carriages and traps and the like. From the English landscape movement, you know, from our grand estates here in this country, we have that history of the carriage driveway around, you know, the parks, the, the grand estates that we have. And that seeped its way into these public parks. But, of course, it wasn't for pleasure, just pleasure. It was for people to move from one side to the other. 
The way it's executed in the two parks, in Central Park and in um, Birkenhead, is rather different. Uh, Central Park, the roadways cross, but they're very much screened with undulative topography, basically, right? So you you don't really notice them. And for some reason... You don't particularly hear them. <laughs> Places are lovely and green and drippy and ferny, and um, they've got that certain quality about them. Yeah. And they seem to blend very well with the rocky gorges that Olmsted created. In Birkenhead, they're wider. Sorry, the, the areas are flat. They seem a bit flat, even though the Paxton created undulation. It just seems quite different. And nowadays, these places are quite useful for parking on. And the parks managers gain <laughs> gain a revenue, um, you know, charging us to park our vehicles for those who dare drive in the city. A very interesting observation. Now, one of the most significant points that you make in your article is that both Birkenhead and Central Park basically sparked massive city park movements in the UK and the States. Um, How does the commissioning of large-scale public green spaces today compare to the attitudes of those who created Birkenhead and Back Central. in the day, when, when those two sites were created, it was very much a bottom, uh, sorry, a top-down approach. I'm not sure how many of the local people were consulted or talked to. Whereas today, we would definitely expect co-design and community engagement and a lot more interaction with the creation of a new park. How often does, does that happen, though, a new park? And But even with the creation of um, changes within our parks, you know, people expect to be to know what's going on. They feel very... Um, uh, possessive, I suppose, in a way of those spaces. Um, and that became really obvious during the COVID, during pandemic, uh, when we all flocked to them. Let me ask you about a very interesting development. Earlier this year, the UK government um, announced it was planning to add Birkenhead Park to its tentative list for consideration as a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Um, if this application is successful, it would become the first publicly commissioned civic park to receive this title. Um, How important do you think it is uh, that parks like this should be recognised by UNESCO? Currently, the UK has 33 World Heritage Sites, and as you say, none of them are publicly commissioned parks. And I think it is important that parks be recognised for their important contribution to society. So it would be great if it actually happened. In terms of Birkenhead itself, it represents, quoting from UNESCO, um, their criteria, um, the masterpiece of Joseph Paxton, a highly inventive horticulturist and landscape designer of his day. I also wanted to ask you about the way in which parks are used, particularly in summer months, because increasingly there will be fencing off of a park for financial reasons to run something like a a concert or or an art fair. Parks clearly need to find a way of surviving financially. But w- what are your thoughts on, on, on this particular way of, of bringing money into it? Yeah, I, mean, I totally understand the um, necessity and the pressures that are on the parks managers, whoever they are, um, with declining budgets. I mean, the cuts are just extraordinary. So I think it's a balancing act. Um, Professor Andrew Smith at Westminster, where I'm studying, has done a lot of work on this, uh, looking particularly at Finsbury Park, actually, um, because there's a lot of concern by residents of how many days, weeks, um, a year that's out of action for various events, um, concerts, etc. It's a fine balancing act. And people today, we expect to be involved in our parks, whether we volunteer them or just to be notified or engaged about what's happening in them. And I think if the levels of communication can be got right, then a lot of the concerns can be dealt with at that point. But that doesn't always happen. And it's always impossible to reach everybody. 
Okay, well, thank you very much for that, Karen. I'd now like to turn to Colleen, who is in Dubai. And Colleen, your article focused on the lessons we can learn from Dubai, a city which experiences average temperatures of around 40 degrees centigrade in summer, very high humidity and low rainfall. This is a far cry from the temperate conditions of the UK. So tell us, why is the United Arab Emirates a good case study for UK-based landscape architects? I believe the landscapes and especially all the technology and the design improvements that go on the projects in Dubai need to take into consideration all our limitations here. And we have quite a few limitations when it comes to building successful landscapes. Uh, as you said, uh, we have very high temperatures, summer temperatures. We have salinity in the soil itself. As you're aware, the groundwater table in Dubai and the Middle East is fairly, fairly high. And the salinity conditions in the groundwater are much higher than even seawater. And during the summer months, uh, obviously because of the high temperatures, uh, that tends to pull the water out from the high groundwater table, leaving the water to evaporate and allowing all the salts to accumulate on the soil. So that itself becomes difficult condition for the plants and for the roots to uptake the nutrients. So our challenge as landscape architects, first is to mitigate the saline conditions in the soil. We have got to flush the soils. We have got to ensure that the salinity levels are down. We have to include a salt barrier. So considering all these conditions, um, our job in this place is really tough. We have the most challenging conditions, but despite that, I think Dubai and especially in the Middle East, we do tend to deliver really good projects because we have understood the conditions here. That is really helpful. I want to ask Rajan about water scarcity. Water scarcity is clearly not a new issue for the Middle East, but it's clearly increasingly a concern in the UK. Um, how big is the issue currently and how concerned should we all be about addressing this issue in the future? Well, it's a, it's a huge issue, not only in the Middle East or UK, I think it's all over the world. At the moment, it's very difficult to maintain your natural water resources uh, because of uh, less rainfall, and uh, growing populations and, you know, all the deforestation. We are destroying our natural resources. Whatever we have, they're abused, they're misused. And this is a real challenge for moving forward for the whole humanity and also to maintain your ecosystem. We had a serious problem with the water. Uh, we have been very challenging condition. Whatever water we have is, is highly saline, either groundwater or come from the sea. So we had no other choice but to find alternate water sources for irrigation, especially to sustain the landscape. Uh, and we have been very successful in that sense. I think 90% of irrigation for landscape is done through uh, recycled water, made from treated sewage effluent, or we also sometimes harness water from the condensate from the air conditioning system, which are 
you know, very widely used all over the you know Middle East or the Gulf conditions. So when you compare with the UK, I know you have a good rainfall and everything, but I think the pattern is changing over the years. So we should be really concerned, and especially in the summer months, so we need to resort to alternate methods of irrigation or in, engage the, the technology so that you can judiciously use your water you have and minimize the water consumption. Responsible irrigation practices conserve water and energy. Also, it reduces soil erosion and pollution and improves plant health. In the article, you talk about smart irrigation systems. Um, this isn't a phrase I've come across before. Can you talk us through what they are and how they differ from uh, traditional irrigation methods? Traditionally, we use either flood irrigation. We just open the taps and let the water flow through the plantation. Or we have a hose connected to your tap and you take manually, you know, just spray water all over the landscape areas or agriculture. Uh, when we talk about smart irrigation, it's not just delivering water where it's actually required through piping system. It's also, you know, the technology that evolved where you can also control your irrigation and apply water when it's required, how much it is required, and when there is a rainfall, when there is a high wind condition, when you see the evaporation loss is going to be high, it automatically stops and also senses your moisture in the soil. It also senses the plant water requirement. So it's, it's like a big computerized network, a system, which is integrated into your building management systems or any other monitoring system. So th these are all smart features and the intelligent technologies which are you know, evolving every day. So that's what we call a smart and intelligent uh, irrigation network. Let me ask you, how, how sustainable are these technological interventions in themselves? For example, what is the impact of their energy consumption? Well, it's a huge impact on energy consumption. We reduce the energy consumption nearly 40 to 50%. When you have to irrigate a large field or a large site with a traditional irrigation system, you need to run your pumping system for a very long time. Whereas the modern irrigation technique, we only take small amount of water, deliver right to the plants, finish the entire cycle with less than, I think, 40 to 50% of the time. So the time of pumping, first of all, is reduced. So you save energy on your pumping systems. And also the, the size of pumps, the size of equipment you need is much smaller as you do for the flood irrigation. So it's huge impact on your energy consumption which makes it more sustainable. That's really interesting. Um, there's a question about where water comes from, because in the UK, most of the water that we use is clean drinking water, even to flush toilets. Um, do you think that in the UK we ought to be embracing the use of grey water and rainwater uh, much more widely? And what do you think this would look like? Absolutely. I think we had a situation here in the uh, Gulf as well before about... 20, 30 years back, most of the irrigation water was coming from bore wells. We don't have rivers here. We don't have any other natural resources. Or the rainfall is only maximum about 100 millimeter per year. So we were relying mostly on the bore well waters. But because of over pumping and before over utilization, the water table started going down and the water becoming more saline because the recharge is only from the sea. So we had to another no other option but to look for alternative resources. So the easiest source is wastewater treatment. So all the sewage which we uh, generate every day in such a big city, it's being treated in a central sewage treatment plant, and then it comes back to the city 
which is used for irrigation or some district cooling plants. Even the golf courses, the big sports field, which consume nearly a million gallons a day. So even those are all irrigated with this uh, treated sewage effluent. So I, I, where does the waste, treated wastewater go in UK? You know, wh what do you do with that? Cities like London, where you have a very robust uh, you know, system of sewage collection, all the sewage which collects from the city goes to its treatment plant. When it's treated, it's, it's full of nutrient, it's good for irrigation, and it saves you your cost on fertilizers and everything else. So I don't know what you use this. I'm, I'm still uh, you know, lost to find out where does it go after it's treated. Okay, well, that's an excellent question. And one thing I shall say, if, if I can do a plug for the next edition of the journal, we'll be devoted entirely to the topic of water. So we will come back to that. Um, Colleen, let me ask you to talk a little bit about um, some of the, the parks that you described in the article. Could you say a word about the Zabil Park in Dubai and explain why it's such a good example uh, in terms of resource conservation? Uh, Zavi Park is what we would call the central park of Dubai. It is very close to the central business district. It is very close to the royal palaces, also very close to a very to a high density residential area. So it is ringed by all these three. And as Karen put it, it's a meeting place for people from all walks of life from all classes and all communities, and especially from different countries. When we designed Azabi Park, obviously we had to take into consideration the layout of the land. We had to create interest by putting in quite a few mounds. Uh, we have fairly large boating lake where we have uh, reeds growing in and that itself has become a place of uh, biodiversity. We also have a lot of native and adaptive plants and Rajan can speak more on the irrigation challenges. Over to you Rajan. I think the biggest issue was to make sure we increase the uh, population of native and adaptive species of plants and which we have been very successful in doing that. It's about 50 hectares of land and mostly planted with local native and adaptive species. The challenge we faced was the high water table conditions, which is highly saline, which could have killed all these natural plants. So we had to install a subsurface drainage network to make sure we maintain the water level below the plant root zone so the plants don't get affected. So that, I think that has been a very successful design element which helped us in sustaining such a big park. Brilliant, thank you. Um, back to you, Colleen. Let me ask you, what are the, some of the ways in which you are able to use planting specifically uh, to maximise water conservation? We have been successful in first identifying the kind of plants that will take in the salinity that, that is obviously naturally present in the soils. Uh, we have quite a few species that are termed as uh, aerophytes that can not only survive in this highly saline water, they are perfectly adapted. They can also exude the salt from their leaves and from the stem. So they are supremely adapted to these kind of natural conditions. 
So we use different varieties of atriplex. We use different varieties of uh, acacias. Uh, those are more salt-tolerant species. Uh, in terms of ecological value, uh, using the native plants, uh, we have been highly successful in increasing the biodiversity, uh, especially when we use grasses, native grasses. It helps in soil er erosion. It helps to bind the soils together. It prevents the sand from moving across and stabilize the sand dunes. Also, the grass seeds provide a lot of nutrition for the native bird species. And in that way, we have been highly successful in improving uh, biodiversity. Thank you. Um I want to ask you, Colleen, one final question. Um, you worked on the Museum of the Future, which uh, features a two-hectare resilient park, which is actually part of the, the, the external skin of the museum. Can you explain how you developed this project and particularly how you focused on concerns about water conservation? The Museum of the Future has been one of our most challenging projects. The challenge was to ensure that the planting stayed in place. We had slopes of more than 60 degrees. Uh, what we had to do is use geogrids. So basically the geogrids would hold the soil in place. And once it is planted and covered with coco peat or the coconut coir, that was highly sustainable. It stayed in place. It did not allow the soil to move. And the uh, coir blanket ensured that the water was held within the blanket and minimized the evaporation. We had just short bursts of irrigation. So that was just enough water to percolate down to the root zone. And you would not have too much excess water that was drained off from the Geocell. Great, thank you. I want to ask you all one final question, if I can. So I'll start with you, Colleen. Um, what we've surveyed is at least two centuries of the park over the course of this podcast. How optimistic are you about the future of parks at the heart of, of new developments? I'm very optimistic. As we go ahead, we'll make more improvements when it comes to sound irrigation practice, uh, including more native and uh, adaptive plants that can survive in this hostile environment and at the same time improve the lives of people who inhabit these landscapes. Thank you. And if I can, Rajan, if I can ask you the same question about how optimistic are you uh, about the future of parks in new developments? I think extremely important. I think they become lungs uh, of a society because of urbanization, you see, most of the places are very densely populated with all the towers and, you know, so people don't have much space to come out and breathe in open spaces. So these uh, open spaces of parks, uh, they're extremely important in this modern uh, era. I think moving forward, we have involved in many uh, residential communities and all, and these pocket parks or the community parks, they're essential part of these developments. Thank you. And let me, um, let me turn to you, Karen, for the final word, given that you wrote the article that kicked off this 
edition of the journal. Um, how optimistic are you about the future of the public park at the heart of, of cities well, and new development? I am an optimist by nature. Um, so, yes, I'm hopeful. Um, but I think we need to learn from what we've done in the past and what we need to change. I do have huge concerns about public, inverted commas, parks in private developments and public access. Are they truly public parks? There's a different model developing. Um, but there's definitely no future for public parks if we do not address the climate emergency. And that's really important. And we have a lot of knowledge now to draw on as the guys have just shown about their work. Great. Thank you very much indeed. So massive thanks to Karen, Colleen and Rajan for taking part in today's edition of Talking Landscape. The current edition, Landscape, the Journal of the Landscape Institute, is available to download free of charge. Just go to the top bar on the Landscape Institute website. When we meet again, we will be addressing the issue of water uh, from Suds to open air swimming. So please join me again in a month's time. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs>